Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, we are back in our spiritual home, the Putney Exchange Centre, as you can probably tell from the coffee machine that is whirring in the background. Hope you'll put up with the uh, the little sound effects because it all makes it part of it, doesn't it? Uh, however, we are joined by some very special guests today. As per usual, we have Catherine Whittaker. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Hello. Four of us to drown out the sound of yeah. espresso being made. A, a handsome quartet we have here uh, which uh, is also uh, joined by uh, Matt Roberts hello Matt hello David hello and we've got making his Putney Exchange debut it's the Telegraph's Simon Briggs greetings yes I didn't realize what a fine view of Waitrose you guys have when you record this podcast yes we, 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 we do have a lovely view of said supermarket. Well, Catherine and I have a view of the Lou's currently. Yeah. Yes. I've got the better side of the table. Okay. Uh, right. Well, we've got lots to talk about. So enough supermarkets and toilets. Uh, we've got um, plenty of tennis matters to discuss. Uh, a few results, a few plot lines within the actual confines of the court. We'll get to that later. But really what we're here to do today is to discuss politics. Hence the arrival of Simon Briggs to the Putney Exchange. And uh, one of the the main the Nick Robinson of tennis. Yes, the main reason Beat for me that. Nora Coonsberg. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Update yeah. your references. Uh, uh, the, the main reason for that is because about an hour after we published last week's podcast, great timing, folks. Um, <laughs> Simon Briggs tweeted that some news was incoming from an LA courtroom. Correct. That was when you were recording the last one. Um, yes, that's yeah, right. That was from Josh Boswell, our, our excellent man on the spot. Yeah, yeah. And, and the news was that Justin Gimmelstab, who, for those of you that follow tennis loosely but don't really, you might have heard the name Justin Gimmelstab, you might have heard there's a bit of Ferrari about him, um, and, you, and he does a lot of things within tennis. He is an ATP board player representative, one of the three, making big decisions, including which one of them was to, to vote on Chris Camo, the ATP CEO, not having his contract renewed at the end of the year. He and uh, David Egders and Alex Inglot are the three player representatives on the ATP board. He's also a commentator for Tennis Channel in the US and he is a former player. He's also the coach of John Isner. So those are a few of his hats. Player agent, I believe, as well. Is he? 
Yeah, and owner of a production company. Yes, I was about yes. to say, they've yeah. produced uh, ATP Uncovered yeah. since 2013. Yeah, so he has a lot of hats within tennis as Justin Gimmelstob. Now, we, we told you around the Australian Open that he was charged and arrested um, having been involved in an assault uh, of somebody that he'd known for a long time, a man called Randall Kaplan, uh, a friend of his wife who he's uh, currently in divorce proceedings with um, and at that time it was ongoing it, there was a hearing it looked as though it was going to go to trial um, and uh, at the time all the players decided that they would keep him in position they voted to do so however in this hearing of last week he was charged with felony battery by the Los Angeles district attorney but avoided trial by offering a no-contest plea. He was sentenced to three years probation, 60 days community service, and a year of anger management therapy after being convicted of beating Randall Kaplan more than 50 times and threatening to kill him in front of his wife and two-year-old child on Halloween. These are the, uh, the charges. The Justin judge explained to Gimmelstob and Gimmelstob accepted that his no-contest plea is effectively the same is pleading guilty to a felony. The judge said that Gimmelstob's attack was considered unprovoked um, and uh, the court heard some pretty harrowing witness state statements both from Randall Kaplan himself and from his wife Madison um, who alleged that she, well she said that she had a miscarriage shortly afterwards and she put it down to that incident as the reason for it. Um, he said that Randall Kaplan said it was beyond terrifying I've never been so scared in my entire life if nobody had stopped him and if he had continued beating my head like he wanted to I may not be here today I could be dead throughout the statements from his two victims Gimmelstob sat five feet away shook his head and said no and that that didn't happen and he was admonished by the judge Yupinda Kalra for failing to control himself he was also warned by the judge that if he made any statements to the media claiming he was not guilty his misdemeanor deal could be revoked and that's important to say as well that the the felony charge was reduced to a misdemeanor albeit the judge said look just so that you know you are pleading guilty to a felony here by accepting this no contest plea um, or by pleading no contest um, and he nodded his head and, and said okay um, he is now filing for a restraining order um, is uh, Justin Gilmerstob and he against is, Rand Randall Kaplan against Randall yeah. Kaplan and I he also that's been rejected right and he also gave an interview to the New York Times um, and that, again the interview happened as far as I understand it before the court verdict was handed down although it could be argued that he endorsed it by tweeting the link after the verdict yeah, he, he did. Yeah, that, that was something Catherine and I were discussing, the, the timing of the, of the interview given. But as you said, Catherine, to me, the fact is he then tweeted the link of that article, which included some, I felt, pretty astonishing quotes um, about his expectation or hope that he would be able to redeem himself or, or, or come back and be part of the ATB setup in the future and, and not lose his position um, going forward. That he, was he also delineated what he saw as 
the provocation for his attack and said, I didn't do what he said, and mm. talked about um, extenuating circumstances, which could very easily be seen as a violation of the judge's orders. Which he also made in his uh, application for a restraining order. He detailed, that happened after the verdict, he detailed the fact that he's claiming that Randall Kaplan had been critical or unpleasant about his father who had died shortly before the attack. So, yeah, that's where we are. I mean, the guy is a big figure. That's the first thing to say. I mean, a lot of people might not actually be familiar with, as you say, who, who he is, but you could argue he's been the most powerful player on, in ATP politics over the last year. Certainly, he seemed to win in what was effectively a head-to-head showdown between his camp and Chris Kermode's camp at the vote in Indian Wells. Um, he had the support of David Egdes, who is uh, his old friend and Tennis Channel, fellow Tennis Channel executive, or employee perhaps I should say, who is on the ATP board. He had the support of Alex Inglot, another player representative on the board. That's all three player representatives on the board who voted not to extend Chris Kermode's contract in March in what has been described as a backroom coup because they seem to want to keep it pretty quiet and they put out a statement afterwards saying um, we're surprised that there's so much interest in this you know we're taking out the uh, most visible figurehead of, of the men's tour in the in a sport which is, is played by people like Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer you know Anyway, so he's a big figure. That's, that's, the, that's the first point to make because I'm not sure everyone is familiar until recent weeks as, as, as to what exactly his role in the sport was. Yeah, he's a he's a major decision maker, and the, the conversation that has moved on since then, and obviously he is going to have to serve his probation period and his 60 days community service. The question mark is now. He stood down himself from Tennis Channel at the time when the charges were first brought. Um, for breathing space as much as anything um, but no suggestion that that was permanent he did not stand down from his position on the ATP board rather he, he stood up <laughs> yeah. and waved his hand and, and, and made things happen in a way which has caused significant upset within the ATP and the sport generally and as things stand uh, Tennis Channel have released a statement which it, I think in your words Simon was a bit of a shrug from them which is a kind of so what um, and they said that they would be speaking to him they're sure that he's that he's glad that it's over now uh, or that the situation has been resolved and that they would they would talk to him and consider their position at this point they haven't released any position on him at all mm. and neither have the ATP board or player council officially a number of the player council members have been asked and, and given some quotes um, one of them Vasek Pospisil incidentally initially released uh, some quotes to Stephanie Miles of Tennis Life and said amongst other things I, I don't I don't know the details of the case um, but that he's done a great job for the players and we would be fortunate to have him serve another term in the future now I, I was shocked by that um, and got in got in touch with him and asked him to to explain himself um, and actually he he admitted he hadn't read the details of the case he has since read them he said all the player council now have 10 members of of, of, of the players that represent 
the wider body of players with uh, Novak Djokovic as the, the, the president of that player council and Vasek Pospisil did make it clear that he did not condone violence etc etc but that he'd made those comments in haste in order to get a statement out because he'd been asked for one and it's quite clear he regrets making that statement without having properly considered all the details of it and, and read all those witness statements so he's now done that he said that they will go away there is an election uh, of a vote now in on may the 14th to decide whether Justin Gummelstab will stay on the board, and that was the case anyway. Wasn't that has it? nothing to do with any of this. And indeed, if he was to be re-elected, um, sorry, if he was to be turned down of that vote in a normal, ongoing process that would happen in any case, then he would still continue until the end of 2019, which is also the position with Chris Commode, a um, president of the ATP, that he will continue until the end of 2019. So uh, that's almost a. a uh, sort of beside the point in the sense of there will need to be some decisions made you mentioned the tennis channel haven't actually released any decision they put out the statement in which they the first sentence was we are sure justin is pleased to have resolved this matter which seemed to me to be significantly insensitive to the feelings of the people on the other side of the attack um then the atp board could potentially remove him on, on, the, on the grounds that he brought the tour into disrepute but that would need a unanimous verdict from the other five board members who include David Agdez, his close friend and associate, and Alex Inglot who's voted with him so far or he could be removed by the player council who did this same manoeuvre with Roger Rashid at the end of 2017 is it? No, the end of, 20, 18. 20, end of 2018, sorry uh, there's so much of this saga um <laughs> keep straight in my head 2018 at the end of 2018 they removed Roger Rashid for in the view of the player council not following their instructions on a new pay deal with the tournaments um, on that grounds they could still vote to remove Gimmelstob from his position and then May 14 would become irrelevant mm. so since then I mean a week has passed initially it, it felt to me as though yes there were some people of, of whom I would include myself, uh, immediately had a, the view that well, this this guy needs to to step down from the, from his position, or or he needs to be removed because um, the sport should not be led by somebody who has this against their name. Um, I think I think it's a terrible look for tennis. I'll talk more about that. I mean, I'm amazed that he he didn't stand down or wasn't asked to stand down pending the results of this I understand why he why he didn't and why the players were, were, came out in numbers at the time during the Australian Open and said look innocent until, until proven guilty was their view I do have some understanding and respect for the, for the for that vantage point I don't agree with it but that's what a lot of them thought now over the course of the past week people have just dripped out one by one and started to read these details and become more and more critical of the fact that he is still in position i mean if, if i go some through, people have yeah some people have there's a lot there's a lot of them now though if you think think about it. notable exceptions though notable exceptions but to, to the, i think one of the first people that i heard starting to change her view was martina navratilova who initially and she's a, a, a colleague of justin gimmelstab on the tennis channel um and she you could understand why it was a difficult position for her in that regard but she said 
Look, they will decide what to do, but I am sad to say this and say this I must. Justin would not get my vote, not anymore. Other people have since uh, commented on the situation. Darren Cahill said Justin should have stepped down from the board months ago pending the result of his legal case. Now that the judgment is in, the player council should pick another candidate to represent men's tennis at board level. If contrary information is revealed in his civil case, then I'd welcome Justin to run for a board position again if he so wishes. He also adds there's good in Justin that many people don't get to see, but clearly what happened is unacceptable on many levels. Amelia Meresmo said, I guess that's not the kind of behaviour you want to see from someone in our sport, having a big role in any of the ATP, WTA or ITF, definitely not and the big one was Andy Murray speaking to Simon in the Telegraph and Andy Murray coming out and saying, I don't see how with everything that has gone on how it's possible for him to remain in a position of authority or management at the ATP right now those are quite big words from a significant player given that his fellow, let's say, Big Four members, we haven't heard from two of them at all. In Roger Federer hasn't been in a position to be asked, certainly in a press conference. Novak Djokovic hasn't played a tournament since then. He's also the head of the player council, so there's a sort of wider role that he has to play. Rafael Nadal was asked in Barcelona. He said, I will give my opinions to the player council if I'm asked. He was asked, what are those opinions? He said, I don't want to tell you. So that was, uh, that's what Rafael Nadal had to say. Well, he said he, he wanted to speak to the player council first, didn't he? I, I suspect we may hear what he thinks in Madrid. Yeah. Why did he need to speak to the player council to form his own view of the situation? Well, I don't think he does. I think he has his view. I, think, I wonder whether, actually, after Australia, when he did come out and say what he thought about the Chris Commode situation, was kind of admonished by Novak Djokovic a little bit as to say, well, you could have come and found me. Um, there was and a to and fro about that, wasn't there? There, there was. I, I wonder whether he thinks actually what I should do is tell the people making the decisions rather than talk to the press and then hear about it from them. I wonder whether he feels that, which I could kind of understand. I would personally prefer. I think they just need to get this on with it and tell us now. what what they what they think. Like this Andy is Murray has bigger done. than an internal dispute now. I think uh, what Andy. For me, all the way through the last few years, has shown is his unusual ability to actually see tennis from a, war, a broader perspective, which very few of the others have. You know, athletes are by very nature very selfish. They live in a bubble. They have to. They have to try and compete and focus on the court. And Andy has been unusual in his ability to see big pictures. And and some of the other players resent him for the things he's said in defence of equal pay um, and his sort of feminist stance. So it wasn't a surprise to me that he, he was the first to comment on this. I did reach out to Novak Djokovic's press uh, wing, if you like, to say, you know, uh, is there any way we can sort of discuss what, what his stance might be, or off the record even, um, and didn't have any joy with that. So I suppose, you know, he's going to come into the press room in Madrid, and that will be interesting as well. Yeah, it's certainly well. Well, what's what are all of our views on this situation as things stand what's your view Simon I don't think he will stand for election on May the 14th maybe I'm an optimist but I feel that the board and I don't mean he'll stand he'll, he'll sit down voluntarily but I think that all, either the board or the player council will, will make a stand I do actually think that will happen 
but I've been optimistic before. I mean, I think that's the right thing. And I've been proved wrong before. Um, I'm not sure that the tennis channel will stand by him either. But again, the same rider applies. Fascinating, incidentally, that John Wertheim, who is somebody who's worked with him for 20 years uh, and, com- and broadcast with him on Tennis Channel, wrote a really interesting piece on the Sports Illustrated website, kind of like an imaginary address to Justin Gimmelstab if he was his boss um, and effectively said, look, you're, I'm not going to stand you down, you're going to stand yourself down. Um, and he made the point of tennis having had enough of him um, and the damage that he was doing to it. At the moment, I've heard absolutely nothing to suggest that he is interested in doing that or considering it. I mean, maybe he'll move his position if people start saying that they won't vote for him. Um, so I'm not, I don't think that will happen, but I do think that that was a fine piece from John. And I think people, some people have been criticising him for not going further, but you've got to understand that, that um, they are colleagues in a sense and, and his hands are a little bit tied and he's been upfront, John, I mean, about the, the position he's in with regards to having the same employers. Um, and I think within the constraints he was working with, he went a long way and put himself on the line and I have a lot of respect for that. What do you think, Catherine? Oh, crikey. I mean, I... I um I think the nature of the statements that have been made, even the people that are prepared to speak out against him, the sort of relative to our feelings, you know, those statements feel extremely cautious and watered down, you know, even the ones that speak out against him. And I think that's an indicator of the power and influence that this guy has in the sport. You can't underestimate that. Everyone's terrified of saying the wrong thing, of being sued by him of of you know it's it is a plausible scenario that he remains in a position of power in tennis to some degree you know in that new york times article the most recent one he being as i see it a a, a deluded narcissist he sees this as an opportunity for his proudest and greatest ever achievement i.e. The, redemp- the, the redemption story yeah, he says, I wouldn't be the first person who's had a major issue, extenuating circumstances, and ascended to tremendous positions of responsibility, power, and leadership. I could turn it around, and I think that would be one of my greatest, most proud accomplishments. That, that is how he views this situation. And as much as I think to us, I don't want to speak for everyone else, but I think we're broadly on the same page, I think it's ludicrous that... <laughs> we're even having these conversations in any other corporate environment this would be cut and dry you know extraordinary measures would be being put in place we wouldn't be waiting for may the 14th for a for a, for a scheduled meeting and, and yeah I, I i'm horrified to discover there isn't some kind of formal process that's automatically triggered in scenarios like like this um well everybody's been handing it around haven't they yeah i mean if you look at the official bodies actually and it should be said here wimbledon were the first ones to make a statement on this subject and to make their views known in their in the in the way that they are able um what 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 was the actual statement that they put out uh, Wimbledon put out a statement saying the AELTC can confirm that Justin Gimmelstrup has not and will not be invited to participate in the inter- invitational events or to attend the Royal Box 
at the championships in 2019. Um, that's probably the strongest of the. Well, the uh, FFT hasn't put out a statement. It's the strongest of the three, I would say. USTA have, have postponed making any kind of decision. They've said um, that they followed the news closely, assessing the situation, um, and will make a decision regarding Mr. Gimmelstob's access to the 2019 US Open closer to the tournament. Tennis Australia's statement is particularly weak, in my view. Positions of leadership come with higher levels of expectations and accountability. The privilege to being, an, I mean, also grammatically incorrect, but so anything else. <laughs> the privilege to being in a position of authority requires behaviour that sets a standard and a good example. So a completely sort of detached statement about um, general, general um, uh, things associated with leadership and authorities. They say, we acknowledge and support that the future of the America's representative on the Player Council is a decision for the ATP, its membership, and ultimately the Player Council. I mean, I should say none of these organisations came out with the statements... Proactively. Proactively. Yeah. I mean, they were chased. Um, yeah. And Again, I'm still chasing the FFT to see what their position is. More indications that... Everybody is still nervous, despite this, of pissing this guy off. Well, I have and to that say, we're in a date. You know that. What does it take? Those quotes. What does it take? Those quotes from Justin Gummelstab in the New York Times about it being his opportunity and maybe his greatest achievement to come back from this are, the, are probably the ones that anger me the most <laughs> because it's not about you, mate. It's not about you. It's not, this isn't your redemption we're looking at here. This is about you not having a position in this sport that you have tainted the way you have um, with your behavior. And it's not the first time. Let's go back 11 years to the comments that he said um, on a radio show about female players, which, which were appalling at the time, which, which resulted in a, in a groveling apology from him. It was a brilliant apology, brilliantly well written. Uh, we all believed it. Well, you, know, you could have believed it. <laughs> well, he's obviously um, being a clever guy. I mean, there's and, no doubt in that. And, and, and it got him out of it because he was only a, a short time into his period on the ATP board at that point. And I think if that had happened today, without any of these other conditions, I think just times have changed a little. I don't think that, that he would be able to carry on having said those things. I think that's optimistic, personally. But <laughs> OK, I, I do feel things have moved. I, th- I don't Hope think so. things would have been accepted the way or his apology would have been accepted in the way it was. Um, and uh, an incident yeah. on a paddle court last year reportedly made homophobic comments and, and threatened an opponent with violence. You know, I, I mean, should should say reportedly, as well, you said. I yeah. did say reportedly. Yeah. Well, that's it. It's been there've been these allegations in the past. This is now concrete. This is now. Yeah, I mean, look, this, this changes things. In all honesty, I mean, I've been in tennis 10, 12 years. He's not somebody I've ever. I mean, I've not had dealings with him it's not something you know I've got no concrete personal anecdotal evidence of him being appalling I've never felt comfortable around him I've always wanted to keep my distance you know the, the I'm I'm a very um wafty liberal when it comes to well pretty much everything but I I think there are plenty of people that haven't committed any criminal offences that are appalling and probably deserve a great deal of comeuppance and I think there are plenty of people that have committed criminal offences that I would support and 
considered to be good human beings in spite of that you know and I also believe in the Johnny Cash thing if you can support the criminal without supporting the crime you know I don't see criminality as a cut and dry black and white way of judging someone's character however I don't I, I see absolutely no mitigation for Justin Gimmelstrop I see no there is nothing about him no anecdotal evidence no personal experience no nothing that prods at any of my lefty liberal instincts re-criminality every fibre of my being says this guy is bad you know rotten make his potential the fact that his future involvement in the governance of the sport is even up up for discussion makes me feel ashamed of this sport um, and I'm a bit bereft, really. I'm a bit bereft about the whole thing. And on the subject, I agree with you. Those comments were the ones <laughs> among a sea of um, anger-inducing comments. Those were the ones that got to me the worst. Because aside from anything else, you know, come, come back to the same point we made about Sharapova, to even contemplate any kind of redemption, you have to be seeking redemption. You have to be... You have to front up to what you've done for anyone to even contemplate offering you redemption. I mean, there are people like Dan Cahill have said there is good in him. Um, I do know one or two Very bad. few people, people are universally good or universally bad. Yeah. Should, should we broaden it out a little bit to the way that he's influenced in his politics? Because there's an interesting quote in that New York Times piece where he talks about what he's brought to the table. Maybe I could uh, ask Matt to um, just locate that point about how he felt he'd outmaneuvered the tournament Mm. Mm. also very proudly talks about only getting two hours sleep a night Uh, well we're looking for that but the point when I was reading John's piece which I did as I said I did Phil had a lot of strong argument in it John Wertheim I had a sort of epiphany about the way that he divides people even Kimmelstob himself weirdly said to TMZ didn't he I'm polarising right at the beginning of this uh, argument with the guy that he's he's been found guilty of, of beating up. He said to him, "You're either with the Gimmelstobs or the Sinots. The, the Sinot being the family of his estranged wife. You know, everything is about adversarial uh, confrontation. This is the way these handle the politics of the ATP." Uh, have you got a map? Yeah. So he says, "This sounds horrible, but I'm very good at what I do." And that upsets people in our structure. The players know how good I am, especially in terms of improving prize money for them, and that pisses off the tournaments. It annoys them that, even in a compromised state, I've been able to outwit, outmaneuver, outstrategize, and outmobilize them. So he's sitting on a board which consists of three tournament representatives (laughs) and three player representatives, and he thinks this is something to celebrate. So for Justin Gimmelstob, it seems that everything is a zero-sum game. If somebody wins, somebody's got to lose. Um, and that is not how tennis should be. And if you actually, I'd like to refer you to your very interesting interview with Yanki Tipsarovic and the way that he talked about the players have to believe that it's possible to move the French Open to Rome, to move the Australian Open to Beijing and to move Wimbledon to Abu Dhabi. In other words, the players... Uh, Tips Arabic is close to Novak Djokovic. He's close to this wave of confrontational player politics that has been, in my opinion, fueled by Justin Gimmelstop. They want to confront the tournaments. They want to say, you've got to pay us more, we're going to go on strike. Uh, and this is the way that he's 
toxified the entire politics of the sport. And it's just... I agree that the whole inability of tennis to turn around and make a clear statement at this point makes it look small and shabby. But it also, he's also jamming up the works at a time when, A, the men's tour is coming to an end of stability in the sense of having these huge heroes who are, like it or not, not going to be around for many, for many more years. And B, the slams are... They, they may not be playing the players for 50% of their revenues they want, but it's unbelievable what they are doing. I mean, Wimbledon bought the golf club, right? The French Open is building a new stadium. It, it, it's moving into the next-door gardens. The amount of money that is being spent on improving the fan experience, on boosting tennis right now, it is mind-boggling. And the slams have never been better or stronger. And this is the one positive about tennis right now, is that as somebody who covers a sport, you know, I went from the US Open, which finished with the Serena meltdown which was on all the front pages straight into the Australian Open which began with Andy Murray talking about potential retirement all the front pages this sport the slams it's not just those events all the stories around them whether it be you know the change of shirt that that caused the fuss at the US Open they are massive crossover stories tennis has never been stronger in those weeks and the players are now saying we don't like this you know we think we should uh, uh, we should be confronting you and saying that we're not getting our piece of the pie because you're having all the fun now Okay, I've moved away from Justin Gimmelstob as an individual, but this inability to see the big picture and to see the tennis is not a zero-sum game, I think is directly his responsibility. And it's also, it is not black and white. You can, you can exert some pressure and do some negotiating, but what I've discovered over the course of my career is that there's different ways to negotiate. You don't just have to hammer somebody into the ground in the way that Justin Gimmelstob talks about in those quotes. And what, what really winds me up is that he thinks that only he could do that. And therefore, his position should be—he should be bulletproof as a result of it. Why would you do that in the first place? It's actually a terrible way to negotiate. And one of the things that I said to Vasek Pospisil is, "You don't need this guy." My point is, yes, he might have done a good job for you, as you—you—it's fair to acknowledge somebody who you think has done a good job for you. But are you telling me he is the only person who could negotiate a good deal for you? Because I do not believe that. Are you telling me, Tennis Channel, that he's the only commentator that is good enough for you? I don't believe that. I'm sure he's very good. But you can get a good one that hasn't got something like this next to their name. And same for the players. There's different types of leadership. I, I, was, I was at the Sport Industry Awards the other day and Gareth Southgate came onto the stage, the England football manager, and he is a victory for decency of, yes, having brains, but finding a way to lead that doesn't involve grabbing people by the scruff of the neck and scaring them into submission and getting them to, to do what, what they want just by being adversarial. He, he has people follow him in a way that doesn't make people feel like dirt. But it's, it's so backwards, isn't it, that the players might be the ones who are able to decide on Justin Gimmelstob's future. If he's, if he's so good at helping them, then why are they the ones who have got the power to keep him in the job? Because obviously some of them are going to be swayed to support him because of what he's done for them. He's been convicted in a court of law. Why, why do we need Kevin Anderson yeah. to decide or... 
Novak Djokovic or Bruno Suarez, the people on the council. It, it, it's it does need a redef- it needs redefining, doesn't it? The, 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 or there needs to be something in their rules that enables them to say, actually, if you behave like that, you can't well, serve on this. Well, it's he's, like he's, he's a schemer, isn't it? And he's got and he's got all these people in place who support him, David Edges. So he's he's kind of thinking that he's untouchable in that way because of the processes in place for him to be removed would be his the people who support him to vote him out but on the processes there i mean it, it should be a straightforward decision for the people on the board and for the people but there's on the so much conflict of interest so this self two people on the boards that are not him yeah i mean in any on the players board and one of them is his John best Isner mate would have been required in the equivalent in the equivalent scenario in a in a you know in a Fortune 500 company, whatever, in the regular corporate world that isn't this confused, bizarre world of tennis, John Isner would have been required to recuse himself from that board. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have a vote. He would. I mean, it just. It is utterly ludicrous that John Isner is able to to vote on May the 14th. I mean, it's pretty ludicrous that we're talking about May the 14th, as Simon said. But um, I think the the combined points that you've all made there are really powerful actually it doesn't have to be this way he is not single-handedly but as I say I mean he's been I think the single biggest mastermind of a thoroughly rotten and toxic setup in the in the atmosphere in the governance of the sport I think there's an element of sort of Stockholm syndrome right he's got all these people hoodwinked into he's sort of their abuser and yet they all think we need him. We need him. You know, you only need him because if the parameters within the parameters with which he has set, remove him, and you can reset the parameters, and you, you therefore don't need him anymore. And it's you know, and I, I think the whole of men's tennis has a bit of a stench of toxic masculinity about it. You know, th- these 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 little issues don't exist in a vacuum. You know, the the article that Charlie Eccleshaw wrote about. The, you know, the 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 lack of male players who've come out as gay on, on the men's tour, um, the you know the fact that the equal prize money debate is raging again in 2019 on the men's tour. There is a stench of toxic masculinity, and he, Justin Gimmelshob, is a beacon of that, an absolute beacon, and a beacon with an extraordinary amount of power. And that situation is. Unreal. Really. He does. He does have rivals now for that role. Yeah. Um, two people have have put their hand in the air officially now. Mm. Uh, the former top ten player Tim Mayotte, and it needs to be an American, doesn't it, for the Americas region, or or it could be Danny Valverde, who is somebody else who's been talked about in those terms as potentially a, a candidate as well. He's from Venezuela. Although uh, I did I did ask him, and he said he has, hasn't decided yet. Um, Brad Gilbert is another one who has who has also put himself forward. Brad, who actually has some history with Gimmelstop as well. I was reading a piece um, on Sports Illustrated website from 21 years ago, in uh, in which Brad Gilbert and, and Justin Gimmelstop's late father fell out um, uh, over various issues um, back then. Um, obviously, you know, it's. Um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because Brad hasn't co- hasn't coached for a while. He's been a commentator. He's a former player. Tim Mayotte has has not been a, a very a hugely visible person. But 
I think it's quite a positive that two people have come forward and, and decided that they want to take this on. Yeah, Mike Dixon reported on Friday that uh, half a dozen candidates were expected to stand. But I, I mean, I come back to this point that if he is dislodged, let's say, by an alternative candidate on May the 14th, he's still going to serve out the rest of 2019. Um, that, that cannot happen. I mean... If, if the orthodox processes of the ATP are followed. I mean, I still think that the processes of, of removal are fairly straightforward. It's the people who are not triggering them who are more at fault. Uh, there's, a, there's a slight side, side argument about the fact that when you elect a tournament uh, representative, the 60-odd tournament directors all vote, whereas when you elect a player representative, only the 10 people on the player council vote. And that probably is something that should be changed because what you do get in a lot of political situations is a lot of people who are very apathetic, don't know what's going on, don't really take the time to in, inform themselves, and, and a few zealots um, who then, if they have a, a view which could necessarily be... <laughs> a bit of a silo, if you, if you like. Um, they, they, they are engaging with themselves and, and reaffirming their own bias. Then they can really drive the decision-making off course. And that's what, in my opinion, is happening here. So I think the, the only thing I'd say about the Constitution, apart from the bigger issues about that board being three representatives of tournaments and players, which is complicated already, is that all the players should be voting for that player representative when they come up for re-election, not just a player council. So your view is the most likely scenario here is that this will be resolved before we get to May the 14th and actually he won't be on that. I think there are going to be votes because the, the, two, the two processes which I'm talking about will be invoked before then. Um, I don't know quite when, I don't know what the results will be, but I, I just still cling to this perhaps naive belief that people are going to see sense and they're going to uh, vote him off. What would that mean for Chris Commode, of whom his tenure was not renewed, it's not going to be renewed at the end of the year? Second referendum. Time. I mean, yeah. Could, it, could, could he actually end up carrying on? I've heard one very powerful player in all this say outright to me that they they want that to be uh, overturned and they want for stability's sake Chris to be put back as, he, as, as it were in the top job um, whether it can happen it's all about numbers really and, and, and whether he would have enough support I, I, I think it's uh, possible but i mean there's so many hoops to get through before we even reach that point mm. hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. So that's Justin Gilmore-Stubb. Uh, can we talk about tennis now? Uh, or Oh, hold on a minute. I'm looking at Matt's agenda here, and we've actually got to talk about some more politics, uh, because uh, Marco... <laughs> Simon's weary face. Marco, more the listeners I feel for. <laughs> Marco Trungaliti, uh, the Argentine, you may remember, who drove to Paris from Barcelona with his grandma in the car uh, last year at the French Open uh, because he wanted to take advantage of a uh, and lucky... And won a round. ...lucky loser position, and he won a round, as you say. Uh, well, he's been in the news for some rather more uh, disturbing reasons. Um, he's given an interview uh, about the, the match-fixing uh, stories that have been going around. Um, he'd been a key witness in a match-fixing probe that snared three fellow Argentines, including the number 84 Nicholas Kicker, testifying even though he knew that there would be a backlash. And he said, um, he said the players no longer talked to him. Um, and he says the tennis administrators and anti-corruption investigators haven't defended him either. Uh, he says he feels used. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because anybody who is prepared to, to put themselves on the line the way he has and actually come out and, and give information, I suppose, can make themselves a target. Well, it's another grim old story, isn't it? Uh, only adding to the sort of head-in-hand state of tennis in 2019 administratively that somebody should have come out with evidence to the TIU and then A, for that to have been revealed and B, for him to have been treated with the cold shoulder by the rest of the locker room. I mean, it, it's pretty damn depressing. Mm. Uh, I, I, I kind of missed the original story. I mean, I, I asked somebody about it and they said, oh, there was an initial reveal on this was in February I don't know if I was in lying in a darkened room after the Australian Open <laughs> and then the next I knew of it was the AP interview with, with him and I was like wow that's a pretty good story and actually we haven't, we haven't run anything about it because it's like which day do you do it there's no real peg for it but it is, it is a really interesting story and we should probably be getting onto it somehow yeah 
Um, Sergei Stokowski, uh, a council member, weighed uh. in on Twitter. Thin line between whistleblower and snitch. All depends who is the judge, he said, um, which he was taken to task on. I mean, he, he subsequently tried to... By you, David. <laughs> Taken to task well, on by you. Well, yeah. by, by, by quite a few people. By quite a few yeah. people. Um, Ooh, I mean, look, he, Unfailingly attempting to defeat Internet Stupid I think, every day, I think despite he, my urgings. He's tried to walk away from, from the certainly the, inf- the inference I took from those words. I, I, I took particular offence to the word snitch being used as a, as a, a description of, of somebody like Trungaliti who is, well, doing what we hope players that are approached are prepared to do um, and I'd, I'd, I still haven't completely got to the bottom of what Stokowski was trying to say. Was um, there an inference there that Trinjaliti might have not been 100% on the side of the Angels? I read that into some of his tweets. It's difficult to say. It's difficult to say, really. I mean, he, he told me to go and read a piece that I think he's tweeted, which I, I will go and read, Sergei, if you're listening, uh, but, and, I, I mean, and I'll think about it. Look, Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Everyone apparently is entitled to have put that opinion on the internet. Uh, but not all opinions are equal. And I just, I mean, none of what he says stands up to any scrutiny at all, any logical um, or empirical scrutiny. So I feel like I just, we've said this a few times in this podcast. Yeah, like, I just don't, I mean, we've, we've, we've aired his views... I don't really I want to waste my yeah, breath on Sergei Stokowski. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. I, do, I, don't, I don't find what he has to say on it significant. He's had his say. If you want to take notice of that, you're welcome to. I've, you know. Fair enough. I, Fair I, enough. I don't, but, but we live I don't in a world. see any significance in it at all, apart from the fact he's on the blooming player council and... I mean, we live in a world where the 25 million inquiry into match fixing has, has instructed the ITF that they should be discontinuing live streaming of odds on 15k tournaments, uh, which is uh, still continuing. I mean, this is this is 2019. It's uh, it's alarming. I mean, the sport, like as I say, it's got loads going for it in 2019. Absolutely fantastic stuff happening on the court, behind the scenes. The ATP seemed to me to be the least kind of chaotic and accident-prone body until this year. And now it's like, hold my beer. Playing (laughs) catch-up. Other stuff that's happened. The ATP Finals is moving from London. Uh, After the next couple of years, it'll be in the O2 in in London for 2019-2020. And then it is moving to Turin for five years in Italy's largest sporting uh, indoor arena, the Palla Alpitor Stadium. Uh, With record prize money of $14.5 million dollars. $500,000 more than they announced for the WTA finals in Shenzhen. And Russell Fuller of uh, BBC Radio reported, uh, uh, and, and that is now being widely reported, that a motivation for the move was the guaranteed purse of, was a guaranteed purse that would equal and better that of the WTA finals, which made me laugh out loud while I was making my coffee in the kitchen. I just f- f- found that very amusing. Yes. One instance of inequality in favour of men, and uh, it it had to be rectified instantly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. I said on Twitter, uh, sad news. To which I got a lot of people saying, 
Not found you the troll. It was about time it moved. Um, I mean, let's see. I, I, it's fair enough to, to move it for sure. It's been in London for 12 years. Um, and uh, the Turin city authorities have promised to underwrite the tournament so that it, it's guaranteed to make uh, money for the ATP. So uh, fair enough. But uh, it's still sad, you know, for the British point of view because it's a big tournament and it was doing a good job of presenting a different look for a sport which to most floating voters is all about the grass court season. Apparently interest uh, from the Labour Cup in sort of taking up that the, the, the venue and that sort of, I guess, trying to um, claim the, the, the crowd, the, the ticket buyers for that event, trying to sort of... Um, that would do well, wouldn't it, actually? I'm not expressing that very well, but, but you, you know what I mean. Although it will go against their mantra the of holding space. the Labour Cup in cities where they don't have tennis already. Um, Prague right. has tennis already, doesn't it? Not no. like that, though, does it? I mean, it has a, yeah. a, a, a relatively minor mm. event on the WTA circuit. Um, and that was a huge week for AEG, who own the O2, to have 35,000 people coming through the doors of the uh, shopping areas, the restaurants around the Dome. You know, that, that was their biggest week of the year. So, obviously, the Labour Cup would be a, a three-day three day event. Mm. It wouldn't replace it, but I, I can see that there'd be a lot of motivation for them to do it. It would make an awful lot of sense. Yeah, you've sort of got a ready-made ticket-buying public, really, if exactly. you can market it in the right way. People used to come from Switzerland, didn't they, for for the uh, Roger and Stan factor? Yeah, it was like a pilgrimage, wasn't it? And there was a famous year, wasn't there, when uh, Andy came back having won... the 2012, he came back, he'd won the US Open, his first match on British soil. It goes Roger, and he was, like, the second favourite with the crowd. <laughs> He must have wondered what he had to do. Yeah. Uh, David Haggerty is seeking re-election as the ITF president, reports Chris Clary. No no great surprise there. Uh, and just a few tennis results uh, for those of you that actually want to hear about tennis. Uh, Barcelona was won by Dominic Thiem. Uh, correct prediction by Catherine Whitaker that he would beat Rafael Nadal in the semi-finals. Well done with that. But, and, and we had over 800 votes in our prediction for that, uh, for that particular match. 50-50 exactly, mm. which I found really interesting. See the Telegraph's interview with Dominic Team published on Wednesday yeah. last week. What did he no, say? Tuesday. What was Tuesday, the, what's the gist of what he said? He said he loves football, he's got his own team, um, and he also split up with, with Gunter because... Is it sorry, the Dominic Team team? <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, he split with Gunter because it was like a marriage and he was fed up with hearing the same thing 25 times a day. And he's in favour of equal pay because he sees how hard his girlfriend, Kiki Mladenovic, works in practice and on the court. What did you think of him as a bloke? Oh, what a nice bloke. I mean, he is underreported. He's, he's under-noticed because he's such a nice bloke. And he's, he's not a very complicated bloke. I mean, he's, he's not... He's, he's quite bright. He's just, he just loves his tennis. He loves his sport. He loves his girlfriend. And he gets on with it. And he's a fantastic player. Um... And it's kind of hard to find angles on him uh, because he's just a really decent human being. But, I mean, crucially, very humble. And, and actually, we, I was walking along Monte Carlo with him and people coming up for, inter- for photos and stuff. I mean, he, he was absolutely charming. Chelsea fan, though. Just, yeah. if you're looking for an angle, a negative one. <laughs> there you go. Um, Rafael Nadal... Uh, how worried should Nadal fans be right now? I, I offered them one coin, my coin, my special uh, 
predictions coin. He usually uh, gets a coin out on the table at this point. You've I've got one. I'm out of coins. Just for the sake um, of sound effects. To, um, to put on the winner of the French Open men's singles champion. And uh, 55% have said they'd still go Nadal. Hang on. Is it Nadal versus a, a another individual? Or is it Nadal or Against the, the rest of the field? It's Nadal or somebody else. Anyone else? See, I think no. I think Nadal is the most likely individual to win the French Open, but at the moment, I'd lean towards taking the field. Agree. So you're picking him. Nadal to win it then? Versus any other individual, if you said, if you asked me to put percentages on each individual French Open contender, I would have Nadal so as the greatest single Nadal to percentage. Win but if you offered me Nadal or the field, just at the moment, I'd go field. But you're picking Nadal, and to also win the it. French Open isn't next week. Didn't yeah. he say after Barcelona, I feel a lot better about myself? Yeah, he said after, after, after Monte Carlo, he said, probably the worst clay court match I've played in 14 years. And after Barcelona, he said, I'm feeling better. I've made some improvements. Because uh, rem- remember that his default mechanism is to say, oh, I'm not feeling great. You know, my knees are hurting. Uh, well, not actually. It's to imply that he's not quite physically at his peak. And there were videos of him shaking out his wrist. wrist. Quite mm. and, and and shaking his head while he was doing it in practice. So for him to say I'm feeling positive in a way that 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 kind of hit home with me. I haven't actually seen the whole interview, um, but that that made me think if he's feeling like he's building, then he was pretty roundly beaten by Dominic Team. Yeah, like, he's got a lot of building to do. Like, I say, I mean, it wasn't best of five. Um, but he was didn't have a break pretty, point, did he? Pretty roundly he, beaten. Only, yeah. on, only in the final game. Okay. Yeah, and team believes now. Team believes he can beat Rafael Nadal in any context, and for me, that's really significant. He doesn't think he doesn't walk out on the court thinking I've got to absolutely redline my game to have a chance anymore. He goes out on the court thinking my game's good enough, mm. and, and and mentally for me that's significant because I think yeah. the game has just about been there. But then you know, I think. French Open final last year that no no he might have been trying to convince his brain that he believed but no none of the cells in his body actually believed but Rafa had, a, had, had won all but one of his clay court matches hadn't he he'd lost to him in Madrid he lost to team in Madrid last year and Rome the year before and the, so this is a different scenario this year isn't it so mm. but team is team is clearly a better player and uh, he's, he's only there's only two guys on the tour who've won more than one title Roger and Dominic team. Uh, he's won a hard court Masters event. He's he's finally got rid of Gunter Bresnik, who he kind of admitted to me had been holding him back. We didn't put it in that in so many words, but you could tell that was what he was feeling. Um, he's got Nicholas Massou in. He's clearly feeling good about himself. I mean, he he's really in a good place. And and his tennis personally, is, professionally, his tennis against Nadal just feels more sustainable, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, He's not having to just completely hit Nadal off the court. It's, he's kind of playing his own clay court tennis. Like the way to beat Nadal has always been kind of shortened points and just or the Novak Djokovic mould of use your backhand to play into Nadal's forehand corner. But no one else can do that apart from Djokovic. Team's able to play his own clay court game and it'd be good enough mm. at the moment to beat Nadal. But over three sets. Over three sets. That's the but, big asterisk. You know. The Barcelona court has Nadal's name officially, but really his court Which is... Which is weird, isn't it? Philippe Chatre. Could they not have waited just a few years mm. to do that? I feel sorry for all his opponents walking out onto the Rafael Nadal court to play Rafael Nadal. It's <laughs> ludicrous. We, we haven't mentioned the bloke who won the last three slams. Oh, yeah. Novak Djokovic. 
Well, you didn't mention him in, in dispatches there, but you didn't. Well, yeah, I, I mean, mentioned him as like a front runner for the French Open, but surely he must be. I've still got him as my favourite. What? Yeah. Head of Nadal. Yeah, I told you. I told you um, the Australian Open. I, I'm picking Djokovic a, to win a it. Single. He's not. He's not done anything since I told the Australian you. Open. I'm picking him to win it. It just doesn't feel like one of those years where Nadal like, sets the tone with his clay court form right at the start, and it kind of feels obvious that he's going to win. Um, but I think Nadal, team, and Djokovic, because of what he's done in the Slams, would be. It's hard to see far, anyone else it's winning. It's hard to it. see anyone else. It's from those three, isn't it? Yeah. We haven't seen Roger Federer on clay yet. Have <laughs> <laughs> you seen Fabio Fanini, anyone? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, he was good. Uh, the chances of him keeping his head together over seven <laughs> best of five matches. But He's probably still partying in Monte Carlo, isn't he? I mean, he, he can be a bit objectionable, no, notably his rant at the umpire uh, when he was deeply misogynist, uh, was it last year? But um, just to watch him... A joy, Lovely to it? watch, isn't yeah. it? Wonderful. Uh, a few other results uh, in Budapest. Matteo Berrettini beat Filip Krajanovic to win the title. Kenan Neil Skupski won the doubles. Incidentally, Jay Clark won a challenger the week before. I forgot to mention that last week, so well done, Jay. Liam Brody, uh, runner-up in a challenger last night. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Murray was in the doubles final with Bruno Suarez in Barcelona. They lost out there. Stuttgart, Petra Kvitova beat Annette Kontaveit. I'm afraid we're not going to talk about that as much as we should be talking about it because we've had so much other stuff to talk about uh, but that is Kvitova the first woman to win multiple titles this year there had been 18 winners in 18 events up until that point um, and uh, yeah so she's now top in the race to Shenzhen the uh, the tour finals uh, Naomi Osaka kept her world number one ranking there by reaching the semis this was her first quarterfinals and semis on clay it feels weird to hear the race to Shenzhen but yeah. but retired ahead of the semi-final with an abdominal injury right oh crikey yes that was right against Kontovic wasn't mm. it beat um, Shea Yes. So that's what's happened. Uh, Petra Martic has beaten Marketa von Drusheva as well in Istanbul. Von Drusheva is having a year, isn't she? Yeah. This week we've got Estoril, Munich, Prague and Rabat. Just a final word on Munich because uh, Alexander Zverev is playing there. We talked about his, frankly, pretty appalling form this year. Um, he gave a roundtable interview with uh, the German media over in Munich. And I haven't read all of it, but I've seen some bullet points uh, translated, which, which talked about how he, his dad is unwell. Um, he, it said he'd broken up with his girlfriend. And we know that he's, he's no longer represented by his agent, Patricio Ape. I think that, that that's probably been pretty messy as well. Um, it sounds like he's not having the best of times just generally in his life. And, uh, and, and I wonder whether that is contributing certainly to his struggles on the court. We don't know. But um, I wanted to say it. Well, the fact that he's talking about all of that in an interview with tennis journalists suggests, I mean, he's in a tricky spot, isn't he? If, you know, he got a hard time from me for, for talking about his cold and that and implying that that was uh, a factor in some of his recent defeats. So it's a fine line between excuse making and just really um, pleasing. Um, Candor. To, yeah, candidness. And, and I, for me, this is. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that he's. We, we expect them to be robots, and they're not robots. Um, no. yeah, good for him. I mean, speaking as a reporter, he's, he's really somebody whose press conferences you want to go to because I mean, there is often. Uh, something in there that's for you to get your teeth into and, and uh, he's an interesting, bright uh, full of character not everyone likes him You know, it's, it's good to have people who are a little bit 
Marmite and uh, you know, long may he continue to be successful. And he's, he's in this kind of tricky situation because with all that going on you might think he needs kind of a little break from it but he said himself he needs to play matches in order to get his form and he's so he, he went to Marrakesh didn't he took a wild card into Barcelona he's playing Munich he's basically playing every week you can on the clay and yet he's in this kind of horrible loop of not playing very well and losing and therefore not getting the matches he needs um, so yeah difficult difficult time for him Mm, it is right I think that's about all we've got time for in this edition of the tennis podcast we were intending as we mentioned last week to talk about the Janko Tipsarevich interview to get Catherine's views on it um, to talk about his comments to do with prize money uh, and particularly those have resurfaced this week because we had the uh, the Stuttgart and Barcelona uh, prize money differentials pretty drastic ones as well we haven't really got time for it this week we will come back to it do it in depth but for now Simon, thank you for your company. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been lovely to have you here, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine, thank you. Thank you. For joining us here on the Tennis Podcast. As always, uh, in conjunction with The Telegraph, we're executive produced by tennisballs.com. Uh, we are represented by a mascot, Rio with a Y, and we will be back next week. See you then. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.